Hello, and welcome to the Boring Bible Podcast. I'm Noah Randolph. And I'm Ashley Wakefield. And we're here to take you on a journey through the boring parts of your Bible, books that you just couldn't finish when you tried to read them. Together, I hope we'll get to see some of the hidden beauty in these books, and maybe afterwards you'll love them too. But if not, that's okay. You will still get to tell your friends you got through them and have full bragging rights to your pastor. Just don't let it go to your head. So let's get started. Welcome back to another episode of the Boring Bible Podcast. I'm Noah Randolph, teaching pastor at Wayfarers Christian Church, and I'm here with Ashley Wakefield. Hi, Ashley. Hey. (laughs) Uh, We are here to walk through another chapter of the book of Isaiah. If you've been with us through uh, these last couple of uh, episodes that we've been doing, we're on a new section in Isaiah where we're focusing on the Oracles Against the Nations. This is a section in Isaiah where um, we kind of take a break from critiquing Judah and Israel and the people that God is uh, resting with, and instead we're focusing on other nations that are surrounding Israel and Judah. Um, So if you don't uh, have like a map of this kind of area and region, it can become really confusing. Um, So it's really helpful if you uh, go to your Bible and look in the back of your Bible and find like a map of this time frame, um, which is around 1000 to 700 BC, this kind of era. And if you find there's usually like a map at the back of your Bible that has that set um, a uh, time limit uh, or time setting. uh, And you can look at just the different regions that are surrounding Israel and Judah and get a really good sense for why we're walking through all of these different nations and critiquing them. Um, The chapter of 16 is really interesting. And uh, Ashley, you brought up a really interesting point in how kind of confusing verses three and four are uh maybe explain a little bit about what you saw in that and what was like your first experience like reading reading through it um so when i was reading three and four um i was under the impression like in verse three it says that moab is saying something basically asking for protection from the israelite nation or for the from the tribe of judah that you know they're under attack and they want protection from them but then when you get to verse four it says let the moabite fugitive stay with you be their shelter from the destroyer. So, and then I was thinking about the protection of Moabites, but when I was looking at commentaries, what it was actually explaining that it was saying is that in verse three, Moab is asking the people of God for protection, but in verse four, God is asking Moab to protect um, the Israelite fugitives, actually. And I think in the NIV and the ESV, it's not very clear, but when you look at the New King James Version, it words it differently, in my opinion, to help you understand it, because in verse four in New King James, it says, let my outcast dwell with you, O Moab, be a shelter to them for the face of a spoiler. And so I think when it words it like that, it seems like it's something that's being directed at Moab to shelter someone else's outcast when I read it from that perspective. So. Yeah, so basically the confusion is that um, it switches point of view. And uh, for people that don't know about what point of view is, that is where the speaker um, that's speaking these words in verse 3 and 4 changes. And so uh, in verse 3 at the top it says, make up your mind, Moab says. So uh, 
even right there in the verse, it, it kind of is indicating that Moab itself is saying, make up your mind. And then, of course, the question is, well, who is Moab saying that to? Um, and uh, from what you said, Ashley, it sounds like a lot of the commentaries agree that um, Moab is saying this to Judah and to Israel in these uh, nations where these fugitives are fleeing to. Uh, and so Moab is saying, make up your mind to Judah, make a shadow uh, like a night at high high moon but then in verse four um and at the end of verse three it switches point of view again and this is no longer moab saying this but god saying saying hide the fugitives do not betray the refugees um and you don't get any (laughs) really like you know little god um colon mark um or uh israel colon mark in this and so you kind of have to infer from just reading it. And that's one of the difficulties of the prophetic books a lot of the time um, is that uh, you sometimes get try to figure out these different points of view and they will change right in the middle of a, of a verse. So that's just one thing I wanted to point out before we headed on is always just look at those types of things and be, if you find that something's confusing, um, do what Ashley did and go read different translations that can help a lot or go and read a couple of commentaries to try and explain it. Um, and uh, listen to the boring Bible podcast because we're trying to do that too. So uh, thanks so much. And here is the chapter. Sin lambs as tribute to the ruler of the land, from Selah across the desert to the Mount of Daughter Zion, like fluttering birds pushed from the nest, so are the women of Moab at the fords of the Arnon. Make up your mind, Moab says. Render a decision. Make your shadow like night at high noon. Hide the fugitives. Do not betray the refugees. Let the Moabite fugitives stay with you. Be their shelter from the destroyer. The oppressor will come to an end and destruction will cease. The aggressor will vanish from the land. In love a throne will be established. In faithfulness a man will sit on it. One from the house of David. One who in judging seeks justice and speeds the cause of righteousness. We have heard of Moab's pride. How great is her arrogance, of her conceit, her pride and her insolence. But her boasts are empty. Therefore the Moabites wail. They wail together for Moab, lament and grieve for the raisin cakes of Kiriseth, the fields of Heshbon wither, the vines of Sipma also. The rulers of the nations have trampled down the choicest vines, which ones reached Jazer and spread toward the desert. Their shoots spread out and went as far as the sea. So I weep as Jazer weeps for the vines of Sipma. Heshbon and Eliala, I drench you with tears. The shouts of joy over your ripened fruit and over your harvest have been stilled. Joy and gladness are taken away from the orchards. No one sings or shouts in the vineyards. No one treads out wine at the presses. For I have put an end to the shouting. My heart laments for Moab like a harp. My inmost being for Kiriseth. When Moab appears at her high place, she only wears herself out. When she goes to her shrine to pray, it is to no avail. This is the word the Lord has already spoken concerning Moab. But now the Lord says, Within three years, as a servant bound by contract would count them, Moab's splendor and all her many people will be despised, and her survivors will be very few and feeble. All right, so uh, this is the second chapter in our two-part chapter series 
through uh, the punishment of Moab, um, which has been fun, I'm sure, to kind of go through for all of y'all. Um, and it's been one of these uh, interesting things where you see both the punishments that's going to happen to Moab, but you also see um, a little bit of the mercy that we talked about in verses three and four. And especially in this chapter, there is a huge focus on um, God really wanting to take care of Moab and not just like some of these other oracles that you'll read are really harsh, especially against Babylon, which we already covered and against Assyria. Um, but Moab, he has a little bit of a soft spot for Would, when you say, Ashley, he, he has a little bit yeah, more of he a, does. yeah, it's, it seems as if like, um, he's like really, uh, weeping almost over uh this this people i think there's a verse at the very bottom of this passage where it's even kind of says so i weep as yazer weeps for the vines of sibma heshbon and eliala i drench you with my tears and that's god saying that about moab so um it's very beautiful things and especially i think when we think about just the old testament in general we think that god is just this god that's like focused on uh uh, just Israel and not any of the other nations. But this is one of the first times, I think, even in the book of Isaiah, where you see sort of this emotional uh, uh, talk from God concerning a different nation other than Israel and Judah, which I think is just really passionate and beautiful. And yeah, <laughs> I feel like a lot of times you said this oh, before we went on air, when we're talking about poetry, it's like uh, you could just sum up the uh every comment about it with the word it's beautiful yeah <laughs> yeah pretty much yeah so the uh i was curious as we've as you just sort of took in all of this poetry and 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 the di- different images and things like that was there any image that stuck out to you in this passage was there anything that just you know you really um, just resonated with you or is it very like obscure and just like odd um, the very beginning where it says, like fluttering bir- birds pushed from the nest. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I was looking at commentaries on certain verses, not so much the entire thing. And I know one of the things that some commentators mentioned was um, the women of Moab. I yeah. guess referencing um, referencing the fluttering birds being pushed from the nest, like the women of Moab basically um, having no choice, basically being pushed out of out of something and fleeing away from yeah so. yeah and, and i think that's sorry i mean no no, 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 no you're good you're good but um yeah it was just the idea of being pushed from the nest so it wasn't like they left willingly they were being pushed from it and forced out of it and so yeah, yeah. the there it, this is actually you just sparked something in me uh about um the idea of the fluttering birds i'm not sure it's the same hebrew word but um in uh, genesis 1 2 it says the holy spirit um, hovers or flutters over um, the waters. And that word in specific is often used of birds uh, fluttering over their nests. Um, and it is even used in one passage as that as that word. And I wonder if it's this verb here. I, I, sh- I should have gone and looked at the Hebrew and seen if it was the same word. But um, uh, the beautiful thing about that is that the Holy Spirit also uh, is the only other uh person i think in the bible that's associated with um that term that women are given which is that helpmate or that helper um and so it's uh, interesting that like the image of uh the holy spirit fluttering over 
the waters and the Holy Spirit given this kind of attributes is also what the women share in this verse. And I wonder if there's like these correlations between all of those verbs and actions that's kind of being related here. So that's really cool. And I was wondering if, um, cause I just thought of this as I was reading through it and looking through it, but I know that, you know, people tend to be a spoil of war when this kind of stuff happens. So I don't know if this is just referencing women being taken, like forcibly taken out of the land of Moab in like the morning over that. Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 No, I, I think that, uh, I think you're probably onto something there. I think that the, uh, uh, it sounds as if this is uh, not a great situation where they're being forced out of uh, these places where they've been all their life and had had you know the ability to take care of their children and raise the uh, work on the farms and now they're being pushed into a foreign land in a foreign area so it's really scary um, I thought what was interesting in verse six um, was uh, the idea that even though there is a lot of compassion obviously for from God to Moab. He is also not shy about calling them out on their crap. Um, and you can see that with uh, verse six and following. He says, we have heard of Moab's pride. How great is her arrogance of her conceit, her pride and her insolence, but um, her boasts are empty. Therefore the Moabites wail. They will, and uh, they wail together for Moab. And what I do find interesting is that um, in this poetry here, it, it, it's all feminine language. Like Moab is related as like a feminine um, city, whereas like Babylon is a ma masculine city. Um, and so it's just interesting the different switch that the poet decides to use um, for this. And I wonder if that's kind of relating to the verses up, uh, above where it's really f honing in, in on the women and what their plight is going to be in Moab. But uh, I just, I find a lot of these, uh, verses and those little details helpful for us understanding poetry because we can kind of get a sense of how this poet wants to wrap up the culture of Moab in these different places and stuff. There's also a lot of talk about vineyards. Uh, what, do you, what do you think about that? And just the, uh, have, have you thought, uh, have you seen a lot of vineyards in scripture or has that been something? Yeah, um, I know with vineyards, I know that they, you know, obviously wine, like they make a lot of grapes for wine. And then, you know, I know they have like the olives, the olives that they use for anointing, um, for burning incense, maybe. Now, I don't know if Moab would use it in the same way that Israel would. Um, but here, it just seems like they were really... I don't know if I want to say wealthy. I don't know if that's the right word, but they had like a great increase of crops and land. So they had a lot of, you know, produce, which could be considered their wealth and how beautiful it was at one point and how now it's being taken away or destroyed, which is kind of like you're having the beautiful things taken away from you, which is, you know, one of the things that probably makes God so sad. You know, that's kind of what I thought of. Thought of. Yeah, yeah. And vineyards, too, um, are usually pretty, uh, like you said, that they are associated with a more elite society. And of all the nations around Israel, Moab was one of the ones that ended up enjoying a lot of wealth, mainly because, uh, God forbid, Israel and Judah to uh, destroy them when they went into the land of Canaan. Um, they were uh, forbidden from touching them. They just had to pass through Moab and uh, they weren't allowed to uh, fight them uh, when Joshua was leading. Um, and so since they didn't ever get destroyed by uh, Judah, um, they got to build up their society a bit more and uh, they uh, were allowed a little bit longer to, they were honestly in the land longer than Judah and Israel were, were so they had a lot more time to develop. Also, I believe, I believe in the time of King Ahab, at least, um, 
uh, or Omri. I think it's Omri, actually. The Omri is the king right before Ahab in Israel. Um, they had, uh, there is this archaeological find in Moab of uh, Moab essentially uh, claiming that they're better than the kings of Israel um, because they won like this great battle or whatever. And so we have like this physical, like, uh, Stila almost of um, Moab claiming um, that they beat Israel and that their gods are better than Israel's gods and things like that. Mm -hmm. And so it's really cool because it's like one of the only archaeological evidences we have that um, the King Omri and um, Ahab existed, um, you know, aside from the Bible. Uh, And so it's just really cool that we have that stone um that has all of that writing from the moab times so but speaking of ahab i was um looking at cross references from different verses like the beginning and the end Mm -hmm. now i know at the beginning of chapter 16 it talks about sin the lands as a tribute to the ruler of the land and i was looking at cross references between how moab was actually paying tribute to king david when they defeated him i think that was in first chronicles 18 and so it seems like god is encouraging them to continue to do that because they ended up um, stop! They stopped doing it after Ahab died. After Ahab died, and his son took over. I think his son's name was um, Jehoram. I think it was Jehoram, and I think that's back in Second uh, Kings chapter three, where they rebelled against um, him. And so he goes with Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, and king of Edom, and then they create this whole big war. And and so at the end of it, um, what happens? And I was wondering if this was the reason why Moab was being punished here, because I know at the end of chapter sixteen. Um, it sort of talks about a judgment that Moab had placed on it from the past. And I know at the end of that war, what the king of Moab does is that he's losing the war because one, he's against three nations. And then two, Elisha had also prophesied that they were going to be winning. But what happens is that Moab sacrifices his own son to take over the throne. He sacrifices it to the Moabite God in order to win favor. And they ended up retreating like the other nation ended up retreating, I guess, out of fear about what that what that meant. And so it seemed like there was a possibility that because his son was sacrificed to another god during this war that that's why the punishment may have happened because that was just a cross-reference. Um, so I was wondering if that was, you know. That's, that's possible. I do think that by the time we are in Isaiah's time, um, the kings of Judah are Ahaz, which I know is confusing because mm-hmm. Ahaz and Ahab are right. one letter di- difference, but uh, Ahaz, Jotham, Hezekiah, and uh, Josiah, which they all existed more around 500 BC, and Ahaz existed more around 800, 700 BC. And mm-hmm. so it's a little, little much of a stretch, I think, to associate that with. Uh, that just from the time gap. Um, but it could be. It could be that, you know, you're going back in time and you're referencing this. Um, but I think I think different commentators probably have different opinions on uh, is this something that's... Because even at the end, what's interesting is he says at the very end of the chapter, he says, this is the word the Lord has already spoken concerning Moab, but now the Lord says within three years as a servant bound by contract... Um, uh, sorry, uh, as a servant bound by contract would count them, Moab's splendor and all her many people will be despised and her survivors will be very few and feeble. Mm-hmm. So this is almost like the author of Isaiah telling us uh, that whatever this oracle was above, this was this was said a while back. And then f- verse 14 is the Lord saying now within three years, um, as a servant bound by a contract and then goes into that. So we do at least have a little bit of a time 
difference between these two statements. Um, so it's possible, you know? Because yeah. uh, I think um, Amos had prophesied against um, Moab. And I think I wanted to, because I wanted to know the time frames between that, because I know that Amos was living during the time of King Uzziah and Isaiah was as well. Mm, now, yeah, yeah. I know that, I don't know if Amos was... You know, I don't know the time frame between like who, you know, who was prophesying first and all that. And it right. may have been Amos because, you know, um, maybe maybe it was. But I just know that they were prophesying around the same time. And I know that Amos spoke against that prophecy during the time of Uzziah, I think. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. It was just, a, you know, something I thought of. Yeah, no, I think that's great. And uh, for those of you that might feel lost during this section, there's a lot of history in First and Second Kings. Um, with all these different kings names and it can get really confusing because yeah. there's kings in Israel and there's kings in Judah um, and what's hard about it is that the Bible doesn't do I you know I don't want to I don't want to say that the Bible doesn't do a great job at it, but it kind of doesn't do a great job at uh, aligning the dates between one king in the north versus a king in the south. And especially when you get to books like Isaiah, Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Um, they really just put all these oracles all over the place. And uh, especially when you, you get to Jeremiah, you'll see this. Um, Jeremiah literally has a story that starts in chapter 10 and doesn't get completed. They jump to several different oracles. And then the ending of the story happens in chapter 37. <laughs> so it's really, uh, it's not chronological, I guess is what I'll say a lot of the time when we're walking through some of these prophetic books. Um, and so it can be difficult. And uh, part of the fun of knowing some of the stuff about first Kings is that you can then start to try and piece together sort of almost like a chronology and a map of when is something happening in Kings versus it's the same thing that kind of happens when we're messing with Paul's letters and we're trying to figure out how does Galatians map on to like um, acts and things like that. So um, I won't get too in the weeds of that. I know that could be a whole podcast in and of itself, (laughs) but um, thanks so much again for uh, being with us, Ashley. And uh, we will be back next week to go through Isaiah chapter 17. Bye everybody. Bye.